Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, and welcome to the first of a year-long series on the cognitive moves of historical thinking. Cognitive moves is a phrase used by Lendl Calder and other scholars of the teaching of and learning of history to describe the ways in which we apprehend the past. The first of these, and my students have known it as the first point on the rubric by which their essays are evaluated, is comprehension. Yet for a historian, comprehension can be a mysterious thing. That's why my guest today is not a historian, but Professor Daniel Willingham, a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia. His research is focused upon the application of cognitive psychology to K-16 through education. Today's conversation is based around the arguments of his book, The Reading Mind, a cognitive approach to understand how the mind works. Daniel Willingham, welcome to Historical Thinking. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. So, um, as I said in the intro, it's a pleasure to have someone other than a historian to talk to about comprehension. It's one of those things that we take for granted. But as your book uh, makes clear, it's not something that we can take for granted at all. Um, you Were you reluctant to write this book? Uh, because you, you say that you begin uh, in your first chapter by uh, explaining that Psychologists don't pose the question, how do people read any more than they would pose the question, how do people cook chicken milanese? <laughs> right. Um, I, I wouldn't say I was reluctant to pose the question. Let me let me first amplify it on the chicken milanese problem. Sure. So, Not the chicken milanese is unimportant. Yes. Just... <laughs> so when you think about it, um, you know, if you're a psychologist, so cognitive psychologists study how the mind works. We're trying to explain uh, how people uh, use and deploy attention, how you're able to remember things, how visual perception works, and so on. So you could start with the problem. How do you decide, what, if, you, if you're that type of psychologist, how do you decide what it is you're going to explain? And what I point out is that reading is not the type of human behavior that a psychologist would normally set out to explain because it's too complicated. So if you think about something like making chicken milanese, if I'm trying to explain how someone makes chicken milanese, or as, as I've written elsewhere, how do you parallel park a car? Well, to and, and in a way, that's actually a better example than chicken milanese because it's simpler. Um, <laughs> to parallel park a car, you need to see where the other cars are. You need to be able to um, send commands from your brain to your hands to and to your feet to manipulate the pedals of the car and to turn the steering wheel. Um, so you could say, I'm, I'm going to try and figure out the brain processes, the mental processes involved in uh, parallel parking a car. But an observer would say, well, that's kind of a weird problem that you set for yourself. It seems much more logical to say, well, you know, you just said, um, how do I perceive what, you know, the sort of the spatial relations of where I am and where the other cars are? How am I going to move my hands and so on? Those seem like the fundamental mental processes that the mind and brain would really care about. So why don't you try and explain those? And then once you've got those figured out, probably you will be able to describe fairly well how someone can parallel park a car. 
So reading has very much that same flavor. There's a lot of mental activity involved in reading. And so the, the reason you'd be reluctant to take that on as a psychologist um, is that it seems really, really complex and you'd rather start more simply as uh, we typically do in the sciences. Um, but reading is of such enormous importance um, in practical terms and also in cultural terms, the way we, uh, in terms of things we value, that reading is one of a handful of very complex problems that psychologists have taken on. The other notable example actually is driving. Driving Ooh. is of such economic consequence and there are such high consequences for safety that there are a lot of psychologists studying how people drive. So uh, just to give a sense of, of perspective to, to me and to listeners, what's a more normal problem for a cognitive psychologist to take to tackle? What's a, what's a more discrete uh, cognitive phenomenon? Uh, something like a reaching movement, for example. So how, really? how do you know where your cup of coffee is relative to you and how do you send the appropriate command uh, to your arm and uh, the attendant parts of your arm to grasp your coffee cup? Without necessarily how, looking, without necessarily looking for it, with 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 or without looking for it, right? Oh. Those, those would be separate problems. If you if you have perceived it earlier from memory or form haptic sense, and you you don't have access, you you can't see it now, then you're having to access memory. So then we introduce another uh, another uh, aspect of the problem. Have you solved that one yet? <laughs> no, that's one of the ones that I used to work on. Um, before I started doing work in education, uh, reaching is extremely interesting and uh, extremely difficult problem. Huh. I, I, I really want to ask more about that. Uh, my curiosity is overwhelming, but I, I, let's, let's move on. So this is, that gives an example. If that's a hard problem, then reading is, is, is wicked hard. It, it is. I mean, and yeah, each of the attendant subproblems of reading is is really challenging. But yes. there've been a lot of people working on it, and we have made some headway. Um, so how do we then? So what's what's clear from that example, though, of reaching is or or of parking a car, is that there are lots of different uh, components of of reading. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about uh, breaking it down, analyzing? You say from the ground floor. Yeah, I mean, this so this is a process called task analysis, and it um, it became um, apparent to psychologists. Well, there's two ways of viewing it. I started to say it became apparent to psychologists that this was really important to do in the early 1980s. Uh, you're a historian, and so you would appreciate probably a longer view. I mean, a more uh, reasonable way would be at, currently we think this is a good way to approach problems. You know, 100 years from now, we we may be chuckling over uh, how. Mm -hmm. Uh, psychologists used to think about mental problems. But right now, people are very uh, enamored of task analysis. And, and that is sort of what it sounds like, which is you take something like um, a reaching movement or, in our case, reading, and you say, what is it the mind absolutely must do in order to achieve what it achieves? So in the case of reading, for example, the mind, you have to perceptually different, talking now about a sighted reader, uh, you have to perceptually differentiate among letters. So that's a, that's a visual problem. Somehow you need to be able to appreciate 
the difference between a lowercase b, a lowercase d, a lowercase p, and a lowercase q. So those are rotations and mirror reflections of one another in most fonts. And so that's that's not a trivial matter. So how how is it that you're you're able to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about this um, from a perspective of a cognitive psychologist, reading is such a recent phenomenon, isn't it? Compared to reaching, mm-hmm. um, and that creates its. I was, I guess, I'm, I, I'm gathering from reading your book. This creates a certain other set of problems. Would that be? Would that be right? Because, or it's at like, least, it, it, a, a different way of thinking about the. Uh, uh, the mental capability, uh, uh, at the very least. So, yeah, that's a very important distinction that you bring up, and sometimes called biologically primary versus biologically secondary hmm. cognitive processes. So, in the case of something like reaching, um, we uh, have good reason to think that being able to make a reaching movement is very much embedded in your DNA, is sort of part of your genetic inheritance as a human being with minimal, uh, with, with typical development and with a minimally rich environment, um, kids, children will learn how to reach. Children will learn how to walk. Children will learn how to use oral language. There are a handful of these processes, which are very, very complex processes in their own right. Um, but there, we have evolved to, to do these things. The, the two ways that um, the, the sort of two strong signals that that's true of a process is first, uh, almost all children or all typically developing children learn the skill, uh, again, with sort of minimal, uh, a minimally rich environment, uh, simply by observation and practice on their own. So you don't need to teach a child to walk. You don't need to teach a child explicitly to talk. Uh, they just learn by observing you do it. That's in contrast to biologically secondary processes uh, where you do, oh, sorry, the other, the other thing I wanted to mention about biologically primary, the other, in addition to the fact that there, you don't need instruction, you also see it in all cultures throughout the world. So mm-hmm. every human culture has oral language, every human culture, you know, children walk and so forth. Uh, that is not true of biologically secondary processes. Uh, they're not learned simply by observation. They require instruction. Uh, and you don't necessarily find them in every culture in the world. In the case of reading and writing, uh, this is a technology that was invented relatively recently. Uh, it was the cultural anthropologists tell us it was uh, invented three separate times and then sort of spread out from those three points of uh, invention, the oldest one, probably about 6,000 years ago. And of course, until probably you know several hundred years ago, a very, very small percentage of humans were using this technology. Most people were illiterate. So from a cognitive uh, point of view, if you're trying to account for how people read, what this tells you is there has not been sufficient time for the brain to have evolved specialized processes that will be devoted to reading. And instead, people who can read have co-opted processes that evolved for another purpose, and they're using those, they're stitching them together uh, or MacGyvering them, as I think I said in the book. Hmm. They're uh, using them for to this different purpose to enable them to uh, accomplish the purpose of reading. 
Not not to go off on another sort of uh, rabbit hole, but I know that um, in cognitive science and other fields related to evolutionary biology, there's a great deal of ferment about the rapidity of how processes change and develop. Yes. Um, so f- I think a very sort of stupid example, but I mean, there was, I, I, now I forget, I'll have to look this up and I put it in the show notes, but a book uh, from several years, about, probably about 10 years ago now about sort of genetic changes in the last four or 5,000 years, mm-hmm. which are fast, which are fascinating. And one mm-hmm. of them being, for example, lactose tolerance among Northern Europeans, mm-hmm. uh, where there's, most people are lactose intolerant, but there's a, there's a shift in environment and there is a rapid genetic change. This is related to uh, something like sister-in-law studies, epigenetics, very controversial, mm-hmm. um, but very interesting. Um, is there any possibility that um, even the reading process can change the cognitive structures faster than we might think now? Uh, I, 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 well, first of all, so I'm out of my area. Um, yeah, understood. But so I'm uh, to be plain, I'm really Not as far as I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh well, then the listeners should will definitely yeah. be fascinated. <laughs> yeah, this is this is radio. This is this is learning gold right here. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I think that uh, I, I, you know, I think you would have to say any any process has that potential, but it would need to, in some way, um, uh, bear on survival and reproducibility. Uh, it, it, that that itself is a very controversial matter within cognitive science. Is the uh, how to think about uh, evolutionary approaches to cognitive problems. There are some people who say most of what we're interested in in cognition is rather remote from direct influences on survival and reproduction. Uh, and therefore, you're not that likely to see um, uh, those sorts of evolutionary influences. Um, yeah, and in, in the case of reading, because of the recency, and especially because of the recency of uh, at, at, at which it, it's widely used when literacy is really spread, I think most people discount the possibility that that has played a role up to this point. Okay, um, you begin your task analysis with the discussion of writing. Um, so, why do you why do you do that, and what can we learn about reading by first considering writing? Yeah, you, we think about writing because we. Um, part of task analysis is considering purpose. Um, what is the, what's the cognitive um, function that you're thinking about? What is it for? And in the case of reading and writing, what, what it, uh, it seems to be about is transferring thoughts across space and time. So the, the reason I want to read something is that I want to capture the thoughts that somebody possibly um, quite distant from me, both in space and time, was thinking at the time. So when you then you start thinking about, well, what would be a way of recording thoughts? And then you very quickly, so you would, to do that, you would probably come to the idea of writing thoughts. So you would say, I, here, I'm thinking about a magnifying glass. So how am I going to record that on a piece of paper? Well, um, I'll draw something that looks a little bit like uh, a magnifying glass. And you come up with a system of logographs, uh, visual symbols, each of which corresponds to an idea. And then you would quickly discover that logographs have a lot of limitations. Uh, Logographs are clumsy for uh, recording abstractions, for example. So it's, I can draw something that approximately looks like a magnifying glass, 
um, but it doesn't really, um, uh, but, but I'm going to have a hard time representing something like the concept of justice. Um, sorry, I was describing pictograph. I said logograph. Mm-hmm. Logographs would be the next, the next idea where you say, well, let me just, maybe it doesn't really need to look like what it is. So I can just have a, um, a circle with a line running through it and then a couple of dots. And that's going to be what, what uh, represents justice. And then that, that might take you a little bit farther, but then you would realize, well, there's a lot of things I want to communicate um, like subjunctive mood, for example. I don't want to, I, I don't want to just say like uh, um, the, a magnifying glass lets you see things bigger. I want to be able to say things like if you had a magnifying glass, then you would be able to see things bigger. Now, how am I going to do that? Well, then you start, trying to come up with other little schemes, like I'll draw a wavy line and that's going to indicate this isn't really true, but I'm considering what would happen if it were true, which is what you're doing uh, when you're using subjunctive case. Bottom line, you're, you're, you sort of end up having to reinvent grammar and that's enormously difficult. I mean, that's part of linguistics that yeah. that's what they're trying to do is come up with a formal description of grammar, right? And they're, they're having a very hard time of it. So the consensus is um, that most or almost all writing systems are sound-based because you avoid the problem of having to kind of recreate meaningfulness in language by just saying, I'll just record what I'll, what I'm, what I would say, uh, and then the person can read what I would say. And all the grammar remains unconscious in our minds. Okay. So being a biologically primary process, everyone, you know, after the age of uh, three or so is really quite sophisticated in their use of grammar. Um, But all of that knowledge remains unconscious. So the solution in the writing system is let that part of communication remain unconscious and just record what it is that you would say. Mm-hmm. And yet that also means that between reading, writing, and speaking, there are there's an inexorable link. Um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they all end up improving each other as they go along or remaining at a certain level. Would that be would that be right? That, that's that's exactly right. Yeah. So the um, you definitely as you work on your writing, your reading improves. As you read more, your writing improves, and so on. That's absolutely yeah. right. And that, that and there's so that and that's not just observation of a teacher in the class. That's there's a there's a, in other words a, a sound cognitive case for why that why that is. Yeah, and you know at multiple levels. I mean, at the simplest level, yeah, you can look at. Um, take uh, measurements at time one and time two and observe uh, improvement in writing, then at time two, you'll also predict that you're going to see improvements in reading. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also look at what um, uh, Chuck Perfetti at University of Pittsburgh has described as word quality. And word quality, words are, are uh, rep- mental representations of words have more than one facet to them. So there's the representation of meaning and then the representation of meaning can be more or less rich and can be more or less interconnected with other meanings. But then also you've got, sorry, uh, just to finish the thought. Yeah, yeah. Um, Then you've also got um, representation of sound that goes with the word. You've also got representation of the spelling. 
uh, and then sound spelling and meaning can be more or less well um, uh, interconnected. And uh, um, uh, what Perfetti has shown is that the uh, when you have these very rich word representations, that has a uh, really profound impact on reading and also on oral language comprehension and on writing. So this is, a, this is just a finished thought. This is what I was talking about. When I was saying you can see this at sort of multiple levels. You can look mm-hmm. at individual words or you can look at language expressed more richly and you see the same thing. So you have some some fascinating examples of uh, demonstrating to the reader, and this is really hard to reproduce in a podcast, of how uh, reading is decoding. Uh, could you explain... Um, what I mean, it sounds kind of mysterious or banal. I don't know what, what it depends. What, what what it means of reading as decoding text? Yeah, I mean, it it uh, in a way it's it's not mysterious at all, right? Because it's um, or at first blush, it's not mysterious because right the way we've been talking about it, writing really is a code. Writing is a code for spoken language. Uh, it's a written code. And so decoding is the process of unraveling that code and recovering the original sounds. Now, most writing systems have meaning in them represented directly as well. That's morphology. Uh, but the code is, um, in most languages, the code is mostly, um, uh, is mostly sound-based. And so when children first learn to read, that's when it's really most obvious because uh, most children learn to read by um, learning the sound-based system. In fact, virtually all kids do, even if they're not taught uh, how to do that very explicitly at school. That's a whole other can of worms. (laughs) Um, So uh, yeah, and then it's later other representations come in, but the process of decoding is initially one of learning the associations between letters and groups of letters and spoken sounds. Mm -hmm. So uh, can we take a little detour? What does this have to do with dyslexia? Which was which was a fascinating little thing. I I didn't realize my my apprehension, my idea of dyslexia was so old. Yeah, well, most for many people it is. Um, so th- when when we think about the process of learning to decode, this is again where task analysis would be useful. What we would figure is to do the to do the process of decoding to g- recover sound from letters. You need to be able to differentiate letters. You need to visually discriminate a D from a P. You need to be able to hear individual speech sounds. So you need to know how that that a d is different than a p is different mm-hmm. than a b and so forth. And you need to know the sort of have the memory associations between the two. When we see a child who's having a whole lot of difficulty learning how to read, we could guess that any one of those, you know, our first pass would be one of those processes, maybe is the one that's giving them the most trouble, could be two of them, could be all three, who knows, could be something else. Um, it turns out that uh, it's sort of it's sort of obvious that the first of those processes, differentiating B and D, is going to be, is kind of tricky. And you see kids make mistakes. Kids who are learning how to read, they do make more letter confusions for letters that look visually similar. And you see uh-huh. that not only in um, languages that use the Roman alphabet as we do, but you see it, it pretty universally. That's all right. So when I reversed the Z in my in my last name, 
that was pretty that's pretty standard it's reverse, very standard reversing absolutely. e's i see all the time when kids are are practicing their first first words absolutely um, but most kids get over this fairly rapidly and when you look at kids who are beyond that initial learning stage now they're in maybe grade 4 grade 5 and they're still having a whole lot of trouble and they're they've maybe been diagnosed as having a specific reading disability or dyslexia uh, letter reversal is almost certainly not what their problem is. So the the simple way you can test that, that nobody thought of until the 70s, oddly enough, um, is you sit someone down in front of a screen, show them uh, letters or single syllable words, something like that, and ask them to read them. You'll see all kinds of errors. That's why they're there. But then you, in the second part of the experiment, you don't ask them to read anything aloud. You ask them to simply copy down on a piece of paper what they see. Hmm. And now you don't see you don't see reversals and you don't see visual problems. So that's that's not what's happening in dyslexia. The other problem that seems sort of obvious is uh, uh, obviously a problem is uh, associations. And English is sort of famous for this that um, we have uh, what's called a very uh, deep orthography. And what that means is there's a many-to-many mapping between individual speech sounds and uh, the way that they get written. So a speech sound like S can be represented by S. It can be represented by SS. At the beginning of some words, it's PS. In others, it's SC and so on. So there's all kinds of different um, mappings between letters and sounds. So, oh, sorry, that, just to be precise, that's exactly what you, that's the, exactly your definition of mapping is, yes. is, is creating the link between a letter and a sound. Right. Okay. Right. Or, and letter groupings, because sometimes more than one letter goes with, Got it. Uh, with an individual sound. Um, and so what, uh, th- and th- that is a real thing and it's a much bigger problem than the purely visual problem we were talking about before. Uh, and any any country where kids are learning to English, learn to read English, they're going to be slower in learning how to decode because this mapping is more complicated in English than it is in many other um, languages. So Finland and uh, or Finnish, I should say, and Italian have famously shallow orthographies. They're almost one to one. Um, and in those countries, kids learn how to read much more rapidly, or I should say they learn how to decode much more rapidly. Um, but again, the, the human brain's pretty good at learning arbitrary associations given enough time and given some practice. So that's not the problem in dyslexia either. It's that third process. It's hearing individual speech sounds that's most often the problem, not always, but most often the problem in uh, for kids who've been diagnosed with dyslexia. So hearing that big and pig are two different words, not a problem. Um, anybody, you know, typically developing oral language, kids are going to be able to do that. Being able to say, what's the difference between the word big and the word pig? Or being able to answer this question. Uh, I take the word tan and I put a s at the beginning. Now what? Now what do I have? Mm-hmm. Um, that does not come naturally. Okay, we were talking before about biologically primary processes. Being able to hear individual syllables and being able to say that cowboy has two sounds in it or table has two sounds in it, even someone who had never learned how to read is able to do that. Uh, but being able to say that what what is the difference between big and pig? 
that does not come naturally. And there's pretty much a, a, a normal distribution, a bell curve of the extent to which kids find that easy or find it difficult. And when you've got kids who are way off in the left part of that uh, normal distribution, uh, who are having a whole lot of trouble hearing individual speech sounds and being able to consciously talk about them, those are the kids who are very likely to be uh, diagnosed with dyslexia. So I should have said earlier that you're talking about here is is the the end state that you're referring to is that of an experienced reader. Yes. That, yeah. As opposed to uh, a three-year-old, a five-year-old. Right. Uh, yeah. The, right now we're talking about the process of learning how to read. Most of what I've been talking about up till now has been uh, yeah. what's in place when there's, when you've already learned how to read. Well, let's go back to sort of the experienced reader and, and, and how the experienced reader comprehends. You say that the uh, experienced reader has a distinct, uh, they have a distinct representation for three aspects of each word. Uh, what are they and, and what are, what's the importance of that? Yeah, so there's there's meaning, there's the sound representation, and then there's the orthography or spelling representation. So the, the what's important about this is that the um, ultimately what we want to do, of course, is access the meaning. If I see the word lamp written on the piece of paper, the intent is that uh, what's going to happen is that little neural representation of the meaning of lamp is what's going to be firing and lighting up in my mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, decoding initially works by you don't you the the marks on the paper don't access the meaning directly. The marks on the paper access the sound, and then the sound is linked to the meaning. So we teach kids. This, this letter goes with the sound ol, this letter goes with the sound ah, and so forth, and they sound out the word lamp. With enough experience, um, even if you don't explicitly teach it, the child will develop a representation of spelling of words and also of frequently occurring clumps of letters. So these are orthographic representations. So when you when the child first goes to school, the very first day they enter school, they have a representation of a common word like lamp. It's a two-part representation. It's meaning linked to sound. Hmm. Uh, we capitalize on that by teaching them these translation rules. Here's what this letter means. Here's the translation to the sound. And then we teach them to piece it together. By at, at the earliest six months of practice in decoding, they start to develop visual representations. These are spelling representations. So what the word lamp looks like on the page. Um, and so then in a, a very experienced reader, you've got a big, um, uh, m many of the uh, common words that you read have this visual representation associated with it, not just the sound and the meaning. That turns out to be really important because visual recognition is much faster than sounding things out. So if you've ever seen a child learn how to read, initially it's very slow and, you know, the dog went to, you know, they're, they're sort of sounding each one out. And then at some point it's like they turn a corner mm -hmm. and it feels like they're reading and, you know, they're saying the dog ran down the street. Um, that turning a corner is when they've developed a sufficient number of these, 
spelling representations. So they look at the word dog and it's sort of like the way you or I would recognize visually a dog, a real dog. You don't sort of say, okay, well, there's two legs and there's a tail and there's a head. And so maybe that's a dog. That's sort of like the sounding out process where you're kind of piecing together the parts. Um, If you know what dogs look, you just see a dog and you immediately know it's a dog. And that's what these spelling representations allow, but they take a while to develop. Is this, uh, I was thinking about, as I was reading this, I was thinking about the process of learning a language as an adult and going through that whole painful process all over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that period, say, where you're you're sounding out nous uh, in Greek and you're saying, oh, nous is a ship. Um, and there's that point there, it's a wonderful point where you read Zimmer or Henschen in German and you see, you don't see, oh, Zimmer is a room or Henschen is a chicken. You see a chicken. Yes. And, and in a certain sense, you can no longer, it's really hard to go back and start saying it's a chicken. No, no, it's a henchin. Mm-hmm. It's just, there it is. It's it, that visual representation is so clear, fixed in your mind. Um, you don't have to go back to that, um, to, to the English. So, so I think, yeah. Um, tell me if, um, what you're talking about frequently, people say like, now I'm thinking in German. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that, that makes perfect sense to me that there would that the process is sort of comparable in some important way. I don't know enough about bilingualism to mm-hmm. uh, comment confidently on that. Yeah. Um, so the uh, you, you speak about the odd abilities of experienced readers. Uh, what are they? It made, made me feel so proud. um i i think i remember what i was talking about there um so some of them are one of them is that you can recognize not some non-words look more like words than other non-words so if i said to you if i showed you f a g y versus p p a L and I said, which one of these looks more like a word to you? There would be very high agreement among experienced readers that F A G Y looks more like a word than P P A L, and the reason is double letters almost never start a word in uh, in English, and so what this indicates, and there are a bunch of examples like this, um, what this indicates is people have knowledge about common occurrences of letters and positions, right? Knowing that double letters almost always occur in the middle of words is a type of knowledge that, uh, that people are able to access. And this is an example of how um, this spelling knowledge, this orthographic knowledge that we were just talking about uh, uh, develops and, and how it helps you. I'll give you one other example sure. of, a, of a strange ability. Um, which is uh, uh, called a priming effect. So if I um, set you this task, I'm going to show you a letter. There's a crosshair on a computer screen. Keep your eyes on the crosshair. It's going to disappear. And then a letter is going to flash up on the screen, but it's going to be very, very brief. Um, And I want you to try and tell me what the letter is. And then we do that for a while, and indeed, you find it's very difficult. Sometimes you feel like you can see it, and other times you can't. So then I say, okay, now there are going to be some other letters that may appear on the screen. I just want you to ignore those. Um, the Just pay attention to the one that appears where the crosshair was. And what I do is sometimes the letters that flank uh, the, the target letter 
form a word with the target letter. So the one that you're supposed to look at is an A, and then on the left of it is F-R-E, a, uh, F-R-E, and on then on the right is a K or something like that. So it forms the word free. Other times, um, the, I just pick random letters to the left and right. What we'll find is that um, you are going to be slower when the uh, uh, slower in, or sorry, less successful in identifying that letter when I put random letters around it. Hmm. And you're going to be medium fast when there are no letters. And you're actually going to be faster when the letters surrounding the target letter form a word. And if it's not obvious, the reason that that's really weird is that obviously indicates that the surrounding letters are helping you identify the target letter. So I know that I'm better at saying that it's an A because it's part of the word freak. Hmm. But how could I possibly know that the word formed is freak if I didn't already know that there's a letter A there? <laughs> yeah. Um, you uh, and your your suggest implications at the end of chapter three, you say, and let me read you to yourself. If spelling representations help students read with greater prosody, then it might be helpful for students to have a model of what prosodic reading should sound like. That seems to me a very important point for our, mm -hmm. our purposes. So could you break that up? Uh, if, first of all, what do you mean by if spelling representations help students read with, read with greater prosody? So this is one of the, we were talking a moment ago about how, you know, kids, little kids, when they're first learning how to read, they sort of turn the corner. They're able to use these spelling representations. Uh, reading is much faster, seems much smoother. Um, one of the hypotheses about one of the real benefits to that is that that's when you start being able to use prosodic information when you read. So prosodic information is, it's usually called the melody of speech. Uh, it's the, the changes in tempo, it's changes in uh, pitch. So this is, you know, sarcasm turns completely on prosody. The difference between, you know, I go to your house and then the next day I say, oh, what a great party uh, <laughs> versus I say, oh, what a great party. Um, the difference between sarcasm and you know, uh, being sincere is completely one of prosody. So prosody is really important in communication. And uh, prosody, of course, is not on the page. We have very few ways of demarcating it. You can put italics and, and do a few other things, exclamation points. Um, that, that tell you what the prosody ought to be. But most of that information is missing. And so the, uh, the, and there is good evidence that experienced readers are putting the prosody back in. They're sort mm -hmm. of, uh, and in some cases you have to experiment a little bit and try a few different things to see what's the best fit. So one of the big hypotheses uh, about an advantage of these spelling representations is because they're fast, they're not demanding of attention. You've got attention left over that uh, is devoted to putting in prosodic information. Yeah, this is this is very interesting. It's something we said. Uh, I said to you before we started recording that um, uh, a very a wise professor had said that he he thought that uh, he didn't hold to much of this idea that students were so different. But one way in which they were different. Uh, since about 2010 onwards, was their inability to really comprehend ir irony when it was written down. Mm -hmm. And that uh, that would seem to have something to do with perhaps lack of prosodic reading. Uh, that would be the hypothesis, I guess. 
It could be. And, you know, and it's funny because I just saw a news article the other day that there was some text messaging services that were experimenting with symbols to put essentially prosodic information into text messages. Yes. We're all very, yeah, we're all very aware of like yes. their email and texting is especially vulnerable to um, problems and misinterpretation because you don't know what the tone is. And those, of course, we write them hurriedly. It's very different reading, you know, Shakespeare or something where the words are extremely carefully considered versus something that you're just sort of dashing off. Uh, it, it's a very interesting uh, experiment. I've tried this and uh, people should try it to write an email longhand and see mm. the difference in nuance. Um, there's also an interesting thing about maybe this is even related is the is that uh, sometime around 2016 I started having students say to me you know I, I can't read your handwriting because you're you're writing you're writing in that stuff you're writing what they meant is I was writing cursive I was right. I was writing rather wow. than printing yes uh, and I and I wonder how this is all and now I'm reading your book I'm really fascinated by how this might all be connected but I don't, you know I leave that to you. Okay. <laughs> um, so one of your send a couple graduate students to, to solve that 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 problem. Sounds uh, good. Yeah. Um, let's uh, talk about this very very cool uh, chapter four. I believe it's you talk about spill and joy and watermelon. Go ahead. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is this is great. <laughs> Uh, it's the and the I need more of, of a, I need more of a cue. I mean, the I, complexity of word knowledge is and and the and uh, how right. how these all these all are are related. It's uh, it's a fa- you you give a you, you ask us to offer a brief definition of each uh, three of the three words. Yeah, and yes. it's it's you know spill is is hard. Um, right. Right. So this is. Um, uh, the, and there, there are a couple of uh, levels to this, I think. So um, th- this gets back to what we were talking about earlier when I said every word has um, three sort of parts to its representation. There's the spelling, there's the sound, and then there's the meaning. So now we're getting to the meaning. What does this meaning representation look like? So start with watermelon. And watermelon, it seems like it's because it's a concrete object. It seems like it's not that complicated to talk about what it's representation would be or what is meaning representation would be you know it's a fruit and it's green on the outside and it's sweet and it's got red flesh and that's juicy and so forth and you know we could quibble about it but how hard could it be really mm-hmm. and then you start realizing that um, in different contexts there are different aspects of watermelon that you know you have to have represented somewhere so i think in the book the example i give is this is a really heavy watermelon yeah so there's two things to notice here. One is the word heavy, which is a much more obviously difficult word to define because heavy watermelon, heavy means something very different when I say this wristwatch is heavy compared to if I say this watermelon is heavy versus this child is heavy. So heavy is obviously qualified. It's heavy for this given object. So that's that's a little bit of a, let's put a pin in that in thinking about how we w- might represent heavy. Uh, but now let's go back to watermelon. By saying heavy watermelon, I apparently know what a typical watermelon weighs. And so now the my representation for watermelon, in order, to, in order to give the word heavy meaning, I need to know what a typical watermelon weighs so that I can think of this watermelon as weighing more than that. 
So my initial representation of watermelon was just, um, you know, the, the, the uh, green fruit with the f- juicy flesh on this. Now, all of a sudden, I think I need to have its weight in there. And then if you start doing that, you can think of all sorts of other examples like, well, um, this this is an inexpensive watermelon, <laughs> right? Or and, and so you can come up with um, all of a sudden the, the mental representation for the word watermelon seems overwhel- overwhelmingly stuffed with information. Mm-hmm. And it does somehow doesn't seem right that all of that information needs to be packed together just with watermelon. And so the solution... Um, that psychologists came up with in the in modeling through the 60s and 70s is that what what's probably the case is that what we think of as a word representation is actually more dispersed, and instead of trying to put more and more into the definition of watermelon, which when you think about it is then going to be really redundant because you know the idea of juiciness is not just stored with watermelon it also needs to be stored with peaches and it needs to be stored you know so juiciness is all over the place in uh, redundantly in many different representations so you simplify by breaking concepts down much more and what we had been thinking of as watermelon actually is connected to a bunch of different topics so the the concept watermelon is actually very, very stripped down and simple, but it is connected to all these properties that we want it to have, like its dimensions, like its weight, like its um, juiciness, like its edibility. And all of these things are um, promiscuously connected to other things too. So juiciness likewise is represented once, but it's connected to lots of things that uh, need to have the property juiciness. So uh, you uh, have a lovely discussion of the word spill. Great Germanic, you know, pre-norm spill. It's mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, and then you have some examples uh, which are allowed by the dictionary. Would you mind spilling water on my plants while I'm on vacation? Mm-hmm. Bit odd. Uh, this sandwich would be better if I had spilled the peanut butter to the edge of the bread. That fits in with definition three, to move or spread out into a wider place or area, according to Merriam-Webster's. But it's completely wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, We would never do that. Um, So what does this say about then the way that we use our vocabulary? And is this a a problem in English uh, especially? No, I don't think it's a problem in English especially. I mean, the the difficulty is that Um, words are very contextually dependent. Uh, And so you see that in in the watermelon example where heavy comes to really have different characteristics depending on uh, on what it's referring to. I think that elsewhere in in that book or another book, I give the example of he chuckled softly. Uh And you you can either put that in the context of the 85-year-old Nobel Prize winner went up to the podium to accept the honor. He was very embarrassed. He chuckled softly versus the mafioso uh, saw in the newspaper that the detectives remained baffled by the brutal murder. He (laughs) chuckled softly. Mm -hmm. So if you don't think there's a difference between those two types of chuckling, we need to have a longer conversation. (laughs) So the the definition of words is very context dependent. Dictionaries by design are meant to be context free. 
You can't yeah. say, well, there's lots of different ways of talking about chuckling and what it might mean, depending on the reason for the chuckling and so on. You have to give one definition that's that's devoid of context. Um, so that's that's really uh, that's really what we're capturing there. Uh, mm-hmm. Our mental representations of words um, do need to somehow account for this fact that the uh, words are not isolated. They don't. You don't sort of string them together like beads on a string, and they don't influence one another. They profoundly influence one another. It, it's interesting because this gets to some of the hearts of, of problems that I had in, in teaching introductory writing, which I love to do. Um, uh, but it was uh, very interesting um, uh, to try to teach people to read in context when I have absolutely no idea what that meant because it's like saying to me, well, you should breathe, you know, breathe. Yeah. Uh, it's something which I do intuitively and have done for a very long time. It's very hard to explain. Um, and I would sometimes just kind of be mentally throwing up my hands and just saying, just need to read more. It, well, and that's one of the challenges. Um, you know, it's back to this idea that you, you acquire rich representations of words and appreciate the nuances of how they change in various contexts by experiencing lots of words, whether you hear people use them in conversation or you read them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit, uh, um, as a as another writing teacher I had used to say, it's a little bit like talking uh, to trying to explain color to someone who's uh, been blind since birth. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, you just don't have, haven't had the experience, you don't have the background knowledge to to understand it happily you you know it's never too late you can always learn more about words you can always learn more about the word world and, and you'll become a better reader and writer uh, you give an interesting couple interesting stats though of, of where vocabulary is learned and it's not in the classroom um it's you, you say that uh that if children are learning about a thousand words each year. There are 36 weeks in a typical American school year. Students would therefore need to get instruction about 28 words each week, um, which is seems unlikely. Um, so we're soaking it up in the ways that we usually do by listening or reading. I, I think that's true. I mean, the, the, but um, this really remains a puzzle because most people were, we're probably not getting very much of it from, listening because most people use a, a pretty small uh, set of words when they're speaking. Uh, there's not a lot of diversity in, in most people's vocabulary when, when they're speaking. Writing um, uses a much broader variety of words. Um, but even that is, is probably not enough. And it, it actually remains one of the problems. This is sometimes called Plato's problem because Plato, um, uh, commented on uh, something very close to this, if not exactly this, uh, and it 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 remains it remains a mystery. I mean, the, and the other thing to think about this, and um, Marilyn Jager Adams, a um, a reading researcher, uh, is the person who pointed this out to me in a paper in two thousand nine. Um, even reading is probably not going to do it because if you and and you can sort of crunch the numbers on this. You know, there are. Um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Databases of vocabulary that are drawn from popular sources. So you know how many instances of the word Mars or Venus appears in the general 
um, written language. So they, they've got these huge databases where they've got, you know, over the course of 10 years, all the copies of the New York Times and Washington Post and New Yorker magazine and a bunch of other periodicals and popular novels and so on, stuff that people read. Mm-hmm. And you can just do a frequency count. How yeah. often does the word Mars appear? And the answer is not very often. And if you t- if you assume that somebody uh, reads sort of at random for an hour a day, and you assume that they're a pretty fast reader, they're reading you know three hundred words a minute or something like that, you can estimate the odds that they will run into the word Mars. How often they'll see the word Mars each year? Uh, and the answer is a whole lot less than you think. It's usually like once every ten months or something. I've forgotten exactly what it is. Uh, but it seems like it's not enough to actually do a whole lot of vocabulary acquisition. So this this remains something of a mystery. We seem to we seem to know more words than we ought to know. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's uh, I, I I love reading about this. It's so outside what I usually think about, and it uh, it presents these 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 mysteries of the everyday, which I never would have I never knew existed. They're unknown mysteries. Um, so uh, let's get to a point which is um, it might be contentious for especially for listeners who are very committed to the idea of uh, historical thinking. Um, and I've had arguments about this with some people in the field. Um, you argue very strongly that background knowledge is important for reading comprehension. You say teaching reading is not a, just a matter of teaching reading. Um, as I say, this is going to be difficult for some listeners who are more wedded to an idea of um, that uh, historical thinking can be taught perhaps somewhat apart from historical matter, um, that critical thinking is a generally applicable principle, and that um, people like E.D. Hirsch are just plain wrong. Um, and that's usually what it comes down to in, in, in these discussions. Because um, you sort of defend your, your point of view? Sure. I, I mean, they're, um, they're, they're actually, you actually said two, to, that what are to me very different things there when you said yeah. historical thinking can be taught and critical thinking can be um, more generally applied. Because I would say historical thinking can be taught, critical thinking being a general thing, um, I would I would take issue with. I would I would agree I would agree with that, but yeah, go on. Okay, so let's hear, let me, let's hear let's, your answer to that. <laughs> let's start with let's start with um, with reading comprehension. So the the core problem in reading comprehension, and this is true in oral communication as well, not just in writing. People omit information that they figure their audience already has. Um, so I think the example I give in the book is, uh, we're back to spilling, uh, Dan spilled his coffee or actually it was Trisha. Trisha spilled her coffee. Dan jumped up to get a rag. So you are, the writer probably intends for you to understand a causal connection, not just a temporal connection. It's not just this happened. And then that happened, that happened because this happened. Dan jumped up to get a rag because Trisha spilled her coffee. In order to understand that causal relationship, you need to understand that spilled things make a mess. Mm -hmm. People generally don't like messes, and a rag can clean a mess. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't spell that out if you're trying to communicate what happened because you figure your audience already knows it. 
Mm-hmm. We are constantly, when we're speaking and when we're writing, making unconscious judgments about what it is our audience knows and doesn't know and how, what sort of gaps we need to fill in in order and to be more, uh, when we need to be more explicit. So this can I give a, a couple more, pin this down a little bit more? Please. Um, so you could say also uh, Trish spilled coffee and Dan howled in pain. Yes. Uh, I would have to, well, I mean, of course, these days it could be a cold press coffee. So there's that alternative exists. And so I have to then know that coffee comes in various kinds. Um, This is obvious, I guess, to us. So I could say Al chewed clot and did not hallucinate um, or something like that. And then I would be like, what's clot? Um, what, what, what is that? And then I have to maybe know about it or I have to, I, I would read in context, say, oh, then there must be a hallucinogenic property to this cot that you chew. Mm-hmm. Um, would that be, that? is that in line with what you're saying? It is. And I mean, the example you just gave, you know, Trisha spilled her coffee, Dan jumped up howling in pain. It shows how good the mind is at bringing forth the relevant properties and only the relevant properties Right. So when you hear Trisha spilled her coffee, um, one consequence of that is that there's now coffee on the floor. Another consequence is that Trisha has less coffee, <laughs> right? So yeah. if if the second sentence were Dan jumped up to go get her another cup, uh, that would make perfect sense. Uh, and you know, I'll just call your attention to the fact that how good your mind is at this. You were talking a moment ago about problems that you didn't even see as problems. Yeah. But your mind brings forth the fact that uh, spilled coffee makes a mess. And you don't think to yourself, well, you know, Trisha also has less coffee now, but I guess we're not going to talk about that. We're just concerned right now with the mess on the floor. That That's not what happened. Your mind only focuses on this one property of spilling, that hmm. spilling makes a mess. Yeah, that would be sort of an Oliver Sacks kind of problem if all the person thought about was uh, something that, anyway. Um, Yeah. yeah. Um, So uh, keep on. Yeah, I want to return to the the other question, uh, if if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the question about um, the importance of background knowledge for comprehension. So this invites the... The, uh, uh, the other thing I'll just point out briefly is this, I mentioned code switching. This is why when you're talking about history, you would talk very differently to a five-year-old, to me, and to a fellow historian, right? Because you understand that we have very different levels of knowledge and things that you would uh, you know, breezily refer to, particular ideas or something, uh, you would recognize you need to explain them to me. Right. And likewise, when I'm talking with you about reading, I talk with you differently than I would talk with, with um, you know, a reading expert. OK, so the point is, if I'm re- if, if you and I are talking and you start you, you mention something about history, some idea um, of historical analysis that I don't know, uh, you've made an assumption. I don't have the background knowledge. Well, it's very straightforward what to do. I can just say, you know, I ask for clarification. When you're reading, you can't do that. The writer has made a guess about what needs to be explained and what doesn't for their audience. And if I don't understand something because I'm missing background knowledge, um, I don't have the opportunity to query the author. And what's going to happen is I'm, I'm going to be confused. So that's, that's sort of a, a basic analysis of it. There are other experiments uh, supporting that, that have people reading in more natural contexts. So one example is you can look at, um, this has mostly been done at ki- with kids, 
you give them texts on a subject that you know they know a whole lot about. And what you see is they're all of a sudden look like they're much better readers than hmm. standard readings tests would indicate. So this is especially compelling when it's conducting these experiments are conducted with kids who've been identified by reading tests as really struggling readers. And then they're really big baseball fans and you give them a, a, a text to read that describes a half an inning of baseball and they understand it great. They understand mm-hmm. it much better than a kid who's supposedly a good reader, but doesn't know anything about baseball. That's very interesting. Is that, is that a way into improved reading capability? I mean, I, you, you, I, cause I, I, I'm going to speak very self-referentially here. I was uh, very, the in the poorest group of readers up until second grade. Uh, but I encountered a book about Indians and I was fascinated with Indians. And so I read this book and I read another book. And by the time second grade was underway, I had read a lot of books about Indians in between first and second grade. And all of a sudden I was at the front of the class. Yeah. Um, it, it was a, it was like something, it's like a faucet had turned on. Right. Um, uh, and I remember vividly because it was one of uh, intellectual discovery. I, I remember the intellectual discovery. I can't remember unless my mom told me that I was at the low in the lowest part of the class in terms of reading in first grade. So, it you know, this is um, what what the, what we should take away from this is that reading is not a generalized skill. That's what a reading test sort of would have you believe. Right. Mm-hmm. Is that. I'm not I'm not saying that this is how good a reader you are on the four passages you had to read and understand for this reading test. The idea is you're this is how good a reader you are, no matter what the passage is. Um, and what what this analysis I've been offering suggests is, no, that's not the case at all. It's uh, it is specific to the passage. It depends on what you already know. Mm-hmm. Um so in, it's a little different when you're talking about first and second graders, because yeah. first and second graders are still decoding and they're developing fluency. Sure. So one of the things that could have happened for you was you got it. This got you excited enough about reading that you got a lot of those those um, uh, those parts of reading, uh, decoding and fluency uh, that really th- those develop the development of those orthographic representations, the spelling representations we were talking about before that that does apply to any text at all. And so that is. Um, that that could be something that was happening for you in first and second grade. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so we need to teach. Um, so we to in order to read as an experienced reader, we need to we need to know more about things other than just reading. Yes. So I mean, of, of the simplest way. I mean, this is what I would say if you if you had someone else on your show who is a real doubter. I mean, do, does it seem reasonable to you that if I'm familiar with a topic and know a lot of stuff about it, that I would be more articulate in speaking about it. I would be better. I would just be better in thinking about the topic. Um, and that, that seems really intuitive. And that's the same, the same is true when, when it comes to reading as well. Kids, you know, when we say what, what should we, if, if background knowledge is important um, to reading, what should what background knowledge do kids need to have? And the answer is, well, what do you want them to be able to read about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we're getting into this uh, sort of I, I don't know if this is a paradox, but uh, that to um, to read better, we have to read, um, which is yeah maybe blindingly obvious, but may, as I think you're pointing out, it doesn't 
hasn't seemed to have been obvious that there's yeah. there's no way to read well other than to read a lot. Yeah. Uh, and that's just the way it is. There's no, there's no shortcut. There's no, there's no methodology to teach. Um, the way to read is read. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's generally true. I mean, you can, especially in in uh, when kids are younger, you can. When we're talking about acquisition of background knowledge, you, there are other ways you learn about the world. I mean, you can, you know, someone can read aloud to you. You can watch documentary films and so on. And, you know, that knowledge of the world is going to help you as a reader. You're going to be able to replace more of that knowledge that the author felt that they, they could safely omit because mm. their, their audience would know it. Now you're going to know it. So that can help too. But yeah, in general, uh, the way to get good at reading is to do a lot of reading. The, it's, by the way, and, and having someone read aloud to you now becomes, seems to, to me, having read the book, seems to me a lot more important than it was before. And this is the, the idea of having a model of prosodic reading, right? Um, yeah, having a model of prosodic reading, and then especially for kids who are having a lot of trouble reading, you still want them to be able to access content in schools, learn stuff in school that, uh, that doesn't depend on reading because reading is something they're really struggling with. And when you, you know, in some school systems, it can be like 60, 70% of instructional time in early elementary grades is devoted to English language arts. Well, if I perceive that, you know, everyone's ahead of me and you know, I'm not wrong, right? I mean, like I'm, I'm really struggling here. This is, this is the part of school that's really hard for me. And that's 60 or 70% of what we do. But you can hardly blame the child for concluding, well, school's just not the place for me. I mean, mm. I, you know, everybody else succeeds and I just feel ashamed all the time. This is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So um, briefly, um, why do some people read and others don't do that much? And I guess we should talk about, the, uh, can we talk about adults? Now you'd like this, you'd like this to be brief. Is yeah. That- <laughs> <laughs> okay. Take as long as you want. Yeah. There was a whole other, I wrote a whole other, you book wrote a whole other book about this, but yeah, um, I, well, let's, let's, let's deal with something that's on my mind. I just it recorded a conversation, which uh, listeners will have heard before this uh, with Jim Lang about his new book on distraction, which is really about attentiveness. Um, and, uh, and he, uh, spends, uh, first part of the book dismissing the idea that digital devices are causing us to be more distracted. Um, but, uh, you suggest a way in which, especially for, for me, for you, perhaps, um, digital devices are having an effect in, in the ways that it's, they are discouraging us to read. Yeah, I mean, well, so there, there's a couple of different pieces to this. One is, um, yeah, whether whether digital devices are causing people to read less. Um, the second is whether it's causing people to read less of a certain types of content, which I think is probably right. The third is whether it's distracting us. So let, let's let's try and take these one at a time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In terms of leisure reading. I actually think that if the best data indicate that people are not reading any less than they did 15 years ago, um, despite, I mean, and that's the 2007 or whenever the iPhone was introduced, that seems to me to be the real watershed moment when everybody's carrying a device around with them in their pocket. Um, and the, there, there are, you see headlines to this effect all the time that reading is, you know, dying and so forth. Many of these studies use methodology that I think is pretty bad. So they'll ask people, how many books have you read in the last year? 
And you get um, what, what survey people call demand characteristics there, where even though this person is a stranger on the phone, I feel kind of sheepish admitting I haven't done any reading. The other problem is that uh, I may not really remember what I've read. So the best data come from the American Time Use Survey, which is uh, conducted by the Bureau of Labor Statistics every year. Uh, and that, that's a diary study where people come home at the end of the day and record what they've done. So you don't have as much of a memory problem. Mm-hmm. Also, if you don't really read, you don't feel so bad about recording that in your diary because it's like, it doesn't mean I never read. It just means like today I didn't get to it, right? Mm-hmm. So what those data indicate is that people read very, very little, um, less than the other surveys indicate, but it hasn't dropped. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think that digital devices haven't had much of an impact because the people who read get a different type of pleasure from reading than what they can get from digital devices. So digital devices are not a suitable replacement. Um, and this is sort of what people saw when television came in. Television didn't wipe out reading. Television did affect certain types of reading. This is when the Saturday Evening Post and Collier's went out of business because the main thing they offered was light fiction. Mm-hmm. And television was seen as offering similar sorts of or uh, similar sorts of entertainment. Newspaper sales were not affected at all by television because in the 50s, TV news was seen as lightweight and it wasn't seen as a suitable replacement for newspapers. So that's the first part of this is that I don't think I don't think that um, leisure reading is really being much affected by the Internet, but that it's also the case or digital devices more broadly. It's also the case that um, it, it could it couldn't go down very much because it's extremely low. It's something like six or eight minutes a day on average. Hmm. Well, and that's, of course, um, I think Jacques Barzun said this an essay decades ago that uh, that doesn't count all the other reading that people do instructions right. uh you have uh you point out that uh, very early in the book you have a picture of a i think a, a medicine bottle and point out the real importance of being able to read and comprehend what you read on your uh, on a bottle of, of medicine that, that has been prescribed to you yes um yeah yeah no this is always leisure reading so this is this doesn't uh, it doesn't count reading you when, when you're texting somebody it doesn't count reading that you do for work and so on so yeah people are reading all the time we, we might even be reading more in some in some ways it might a- absolutely we, might, we yeah. almost certainly are yeah. yeah um let's finish up with some um some news we can use um i'm, I'm curious about uh you're, you're interested in k through 16 which who knew there was a 16th grade i had to, I had to think yeah. about that for for a second um shocking to think that we've been up through like grades K through 20, but um, what would advice would you give for us, a professor uh, who's teaching, uh, who's been, who's drawn the short straw and is uh, teaching uh, a one-on-one class, perhaps it's in writing, um, perhaps it's uh, in a history and they're running into difficulties with, they're at a good, uh, let's, let's posit they're at a, a top 50 school liberal arts college research university doesn't make, make a difference uh, there, but they're having more difficulty with students uh, reading and comprehending than they had thought possible. And certainly it doesn't remind them of them, uh, which is the experience that we know best uh, and which professors often go back to as a touchstone. Uh, what should they do? Um, uh, pr- uh, presuming that they're not going to just throw up their hands and, and sort of detach um, emotionally and mentally from, from the course until the end of the semester. Uh, what can they do to I- improve uh, the reading habits and the comprehension of students? 
Um, the first thing I would do is you, you need a, a better diagnosis of the problem. You need to know what's really going wrong so that you can think about corrective measures. What, what they're probably seeing is it's a seminar and students come in and based on the, you know, you're trying to engage them in discussion and debate about something. And then you perceive, well, they don't, they don't really understand what the central point of this article was. Um, so you see that the outcome in terms of better put that certain types of things that you expect them to be able to do, they can't do, uh-huh. but you don't have a very fine grained understanding of what they understand and what they don't understand. And you don't have a very fine grained understanding of what they were doing or not doing while they were actually reading. Um, what's clear is there needs to be some sort of instruction. Um, they, and, and I talk with, you know, fellow faculty about this all the time that people are really frustrated. For example, like I assign group projects and, you know, they're terrible and the students complain and they, uh, and you know, my, my thought is, well, they don't know how to be a good group member. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you want to assign group projects and your students consistently are bad at being group members, then you need to teach them how to be a member of a group. Yep. Same thing. If like you're asking them to give presentations and they're, they don't really know how to give a presentation, then that's part of what the assignment is, is you're teaching them how to do it. And that may be what, what's going on. Um, in the case of reading, they don't know how to take a historical text and, uh, you know, what it is I'm supposed to do with it. Or it may be, you know, it's, it's just sort of pretty standard, um, there, there's nothing specialized about what you're expected to do is, I mean, this is another, um, issue is, you know, so the difference between garden variety, uh, nonfiction prose and, uh, more specialized, um, ways that scientists treat texts more specialized the way that historians treat texts. So it may be, um, it may be one problem or the other, depending on what, what it is you're asking students to do. But you're, you're probably going to, you know, if you really want to tackle this, you're in for some extra work, which is doing some diagnostic to figure out what exactly your students are doing and then figuring out a way to teach them better ways of doing it. So analyze the problem with rigor uh, and collect as much information as you can, first of all, to understand what the problem actually is rather than, man, they just can't seem to do the work. That's not a s- sufficient level of analysis. Yeah. I mean, of course. Uh, and, you know, I, I feel your pain. Like you feel like, th- you know, they got in here to this top 50 school. You would think they know how to read, but it's, but they don't. Right. So it's as frustrating as that might be like, um, you know, uh, and it, it feels like it's not your job to teach them. They will probably be really, really grateful to you if you do teach them how to do that. Yeah. Well, I would say, I would say it'd be a lot, I'd be a little bit harsher. I'd say, yeah, it is your job to teach them. Um, yeah. And you have to go back to first, do the analysis and then go back to first principles to determine what has to be taught. Yep. And, you know, if, if it were me, that's the, I would, I would do that during class time. I would have students read aloud and talk about what it is they're, you know, take turns reading aloud and then do some meaning making while they're going and have fellow students comment on what they're, you know, sort of do it as a group exercise. That's a, it's a, that's a fantastic exercise. I think I picked this up from Doug Lamov, but I think the most useful diagnostic for any teacher from the time students can read to um, maybe 20th grade is uh, to have students read aloud. You can mm-hmm. find out so much about mm-hmm. their capacity by by the way they read uh, dialogue, 
or mm-hmm. or really anything. It's it's a very useful diagnostic. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you? I, and you must get this question a lot. What would you say to parents of of, of students in high school uh, who are worried about their kids' uh, reading capacity, their uninterested in un, disinterest in reading? Um, what's your standard advice? Well, once again, you you know di- uh, you first need to do some diagnosis and figure out why it is your child doesn't like to read. Do they not like to read because they never really learned how to decode very well and they're they're still not very fluent? Um, is it that they have sort of the wrong idea of what leisure reading actually means? This is, I find, a very common problem that students confuse academic reading, which is effortful and difficult, and you don't get to pick what you want to read. And you're asked to do difficult mental work with texts that maybe you don't really feel like doing as opposed to leisure reading, where like, you're not enjoying it, you can drop it. And, you know, you can peek at the end and you don't have to, you know, you don't have to analyze if you don't feel like it. Um, so are they, is, is that what the problem is? Um, do they like the idea of reading, but they don't really know how to schedule it. A lot of times, uh, high school students who I talk to have this idea that you have to have a dedicated block of time. And I think that comes from school frequently because they'll be told like, you should be reading 30 minutes a night. And so they end up thinking that means 30 consecutive minutes and they can't figure out how to schedule it in. Whereas people who love to read, always have a book with them. And, you know, when they're in line at the bank, they read for two minutes because they've got two minutes there. Um, so that's the, that's the, um, what, what I would do is, is first get a clearer idea of why it is that, um, the student's not reading and then try and take it from there. My guest today has been Daniel William. He's the author of the reading mind. Dan, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking and kicking us off this year-long series on the cognitive moves of historical thinking. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.